following audio is from a sermon series entitled, A Church for the City. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit scmoline.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Matthew 5, 14 through 16. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Our mission at Sacred City Church, it's been the same since day one. It'll probably be the same till, you know, I don't know, five, six, seven, ten generations from now. Our mission at Sacred City Church is to make disciples plant churches, and renew the city. I'm pretty sure I say that every week, but i got to put it out in front of you. Make disciples, plant churches, renew the city. And when we typically think about this, most of the time we get caught up on that first piece, making disciples. It's a very important piece. That's what Jesus commissioned us to do as his disciples in Matthew 28 before he sends into heaven. He gives us the great commission to go and make disciples. And when we think about making disciples and how the gospel, as the gospel is preached and people interact with the goodness and the grace of of Jesus, the gospel creates life transformation. We're fortunate to get the experience to see that happen right here, where not only are there new believers coming to faith, people who were far from God hear the gospel, respond in faith, and now know themselves to be a child of God and now walk with God, but the gospel is also transforming lives, and the people who were churched and religious are growing, not in in a sort of institutional religion, but a a life-giving, true spirituality. It's, it's a sense of maturity that as we grow, uh, the, the gospel isn't the ABCs of the faith. It is the A to Zs. As we go deeper and deeper into the gospel, our life transforms more and more, and it's a lifelong transformation. But the downside to, 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 I mean, it's a great mission. It's a great first piece. But the downside here is we tend to get caught up on this personal transformation piece. But it's not the whole. It's not the whole of what the gospel is accomplishing. It's not the whole of what God is trying to do in this world. It's just the starting point. See, God wants to transform our city. And by transforming the city, transform this region. Transforming this region, transform the world. See, God is changing us as Christians in order that we might change our city. And so as a church, if our mission doesn't get past the first step of making disciples, if we don't get to the part of planting churches and renewing the city, our vision is too small. As we make disciples, as we see people come to faith and people maturing in the faith, there's this kind of growth that happens that creates a need for us to multiply and to duplicate ourselves. See, it's not just about churches getting bigger and ballooning up. We want to reproduce, healthy things reproduce. And as we multiply and and, and duplicate in this manner, it allows people, a couple things, it allows people to step up and serve in the ways that God has gifted them. The larger a church gets, the harder it is to utilize your gifts, unless it has to do specifically with serving in kids' ministry, reading something, or preaching. 
Right? Otherwise, most of the gifts of the body, which those are the tip of the iceberg of the, God, of the gifts that God has given the church, only those gifts get to get utilized, the larger church gets. And so as we duplicate and multiply, there becomes space for people to step into those service opportunities and learn how to lead as they have been gifted. But the second thing it creates is space for people who are not here yet. As we multiply, as we go, and maybe you've experienced this, like if your missional community is full of 30 people, you look around the room, it's like, I don't know if I were to invite one more person to, to come and participate with us, I don't know where they'd sit, right? And so this, this, the, there's a necessity for us to multiply, to create more space, to invite more people into what God is doing here. So we multiply missional communities. And as we multiply missional communities, it leads to us planting more churches. And as we do this, as we multiply and duplicate our reach doesn't just double, it quadruples and to the 10th time. And as we devote ourselves to church planting, multiplying missional communities, and, and as ordinary Christians live life, everyday life in the normal rhythms of life with gospel intentionality, this is the means that God uses to change our city. See, as we go out in our workplaces where we recreate the places that we play, God takes us and with us goes the light of the gospel to those dark nooks and crannies. And little by little, our city gets filled with the light of Christ. So much so that after time and gospel presence, we start to see neighborhoods transformed. We see public spaces changes, schools and, and the places that we work and this isn't just for the sake of Christians. This is the sake, for the sake of the whole city. So today as we start this new sermon series called A Church for the City, it, it serves as a reminder. It, it blows up our vision. Not to, not to just get stuck on the first part of making disciples, which is important. But to remember that it goes beyond that in the planting churches and renewing the city. It's a reminder that at Sacred City Church, we're not here to just build a great church. We believe Jesus has put us here to play our part in building a great city for all people through a gospel movement. As the gospel goes out, the gospel is presented and, and gospel culture gets created. It, it produces personal transformation where real change can happen. It, it forms meaningful community where there's a, a diversity of people coming together unified as the church. And it brings social justice and cultural renewal to the Quad Cities. I believe that this is God's aim for the Quad Cities. Now, I get excited about this. This all sounds good to me. It sounds good on paper. You put that up on a website, people are going to like it a lot, you know. It sounds good in theory, but actually being invested in your city like this requires some serious hard work to happen. Because most of us, I would say, not, not just us in this room, but in general, the general opinion about cities is typically negative. Now, even though people tend to have pride in their cities, right? We're wearing our, our T-shirts to represent our cities. 
the overall general view of the city tends to be negative. It's, it's too crowded. There's too much pollution. There's too much corruption. Poverty is everywhere. We see injustice, crime. It's too loud. And what happens, not just here, but, but really uh, across the map, we see this tendency, this desire to avoid the downfalls, avoid the negative bits of the city, and we start to see more and more people moving from the center of the city to the suburbs. Maybe in the Quad Cities, you know, there's not really like the suburbs of the Quad Cities. It's all kind of like suburbs in some sense. But, but this idea of moving away from the center of the city more toward the newer developments, to the outlying towns and neighborhoods. But I think there's a more specific mindset, a more specific attitude that needs to be addressed specifically here in the Quad Cities. And I'd, I'd say even more specific than that, in the Illinois side of the Quad Cities. I think most people tend to look at Moline or Rock Island with contempt, with a little bit of, of disdain. Because in comparison to Bendorf, in comparison to Davenport, Rock Island and Moline seem like an ugly, undesired step-sibling. You know what I'm saying? Like, like the schools aren't quite as good, the neighborhoods aren't as nice, the libraries aren't as great, the programs are better over there, the taxes are, are better over there. Right, they've got a cooler downtown area. There, there's all these things, and we tend to look at Moline and Rock Island with like, ah... Too bad it's not any better. Now, in, in the eight years that I've lived here, very rarely have I come across somebody who is all in on the Quad Cities. Like, unless you have deep roots here in the cities, very rarely is somebody who's really excited to live in the Quad Cities. For those who have been brought here by, you know, whatever businesses that are in the area, they tend to, you know, begrudgingly settle here. I guess, you know, it's, I guess this is it. This is our new home. We kind of try to make the best of it. But, but I think a lot of people look at the Quad Cities, look at Moline and Rock Island, and, and they think that these are just stepping stones. They're just via points to the next bigger and better destination. And let, let me tell you, I'm, I'm guilty of this too. Like when I moved to the Quad Cities, I wasn't necessarily fired up about the Quad Cities. I lived in Iowa for the first, I don't know, three or four years. I'm an Iowa boy. I've got my roots in Iowa. I love Iowa. And when it was time to plant a church here, I was like, I'm excited about the whole church plant, but I'm not really excited about the location, right? Could, could I, God, couldn't you have called me to Hawaii or something, like somewhere tropical? But even when I moved here, I was thinking that this was just a stepping stone to the next thing. I started mirroring the attitude of discontentment that I heard around me. I started, I didn't have pride in my city. I looked down on my city. I was sort of disappointed with my city. And the chances are that if you've lived in the Quad Cities, you've done the same. I would say I guess I don't know anybody who's all in on the Quad Cities like this. And I don't think we realize 
how deeply this offends God. I don't think we realize how grieved God is over this attitude of flippancy toward Moline, toward Rock Island, or whatever little city you live in. Because in some cases, like I would say it's sinful to have this attitude, right? Because at the root of it, it's not love. We don't love our city. It's just unloving. And I know that as I've prepared for this sermon series, as I've been thinking through the attitude that I pick up in our cities, I know that I've had to repent of this attitude. And, and you might have to as well. Because if you don't love your city, if you're indifferent to the city that you live in, then your heart is not aligned with God's heart. Because God loves the city. God loves Moline. God loves Rock Island. From east to west, from north to south, from the ghetto to the new developments, when, when the city is in all of its glory and when the city is at its worst, God is all in on Moline and Rock Island. Because God is so for our city, God is building a church that is also for the city, a church that loves the city relentlessly. But the question is, how do we become this kind of church? How do we, how do we take our negative attitude, our negative outlook, or even sinful, not just negative, but our sinful outlook toward our city and experience transformation? How does that change? And it starts, change starts when we see the city as God sees the city. God has a, a special lens that he looks uh, through, through to see the city. And this vision, this new lens comes when we are rooted in the story of God. And if you've been around Sacred City, you've probably heard this. It's the story of creation, fall, redemption, restoration. You can break down the story of God into those Four big buckets of what the story God is, is telling. Now, the story of creation. Now, if you know, if you know the story of creation, right, beginning Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created, you know that the story starts with a garden, right? Adam and Eve together in a garden. And while the story starts with a garden, cities have always been part of God's plan. Because as God creates the raw materials, as he gives a garden, he tells Adam and Eve to be faithful, to, to fulfill the earth and subdue it. Now, theologians, as the video talked about, call this the cultural mandate, or, or some, some even call it the urban mandate. It's this call to fill the earth, to build cities, and underneath of that are all of these different things. Raise families, build homes, Create businesses, develop infrastructure, set up government, make food and music and art and create culture, play, recreate, innovate, develop ideas and master them. All of these fill under that, that, that mandate God gives to fill the earth and subdue it. And so we see here in the garden, Genesis 1, God starts giving humanity the raw materials to make and develop something great. He says, go do it. Go make something for yourselves. And as you do it, you are glorifying me because right, we're imitators of God and his creation. 
And when all of these things come together, they make cities. The Hebrew word for cities is ur. And, and the way the Bible talks about city is a city is a place where people are. That's it. The city is a place where people are. Usually there's some sort of a border or some sort of wall that, that keeps them contained. But it's the sense where uh, there's a, a density of humanity within some geographical confines. And, and in ancient cities, um, in biblical times, the average city was somewhere between 1,000 to 3,000 people. They weren't huge. So the essence of a city is not necessarily the size of the city. It's wherever people are, and there's a concentration of people, and this stuff is happening, right? We're filling the earth and subduing it. And by God's design, cities are made to be places of provision, of security, where there's, sense, there's a sense of the common good, where we're, we're, we're contributing to society, where there's strength in numbers. The city is meant to be a place of unity and diversity. Though, though there are different ideas and cultures and foods and practices, there's this sense that we're all one humanity, that we're all working together, that we can be unified in our humanity. Cities are meant to be places of productivity and creativity. Right, where we can be specialists. We don't have to be a Swiss army knife of everything. Right? You can find one thing and be good at one thing, and you can rely that there's going to be somebody else who's going to be good at something else. We can become specialists. We can create. We can innovate. We can beautify through music and art, culture. And as the Bible talks about cities, with the exception of a few verses, the Bible speaks very positively about cities because of this general framework that they provide. And the reason for this is because there is more image of God per square inch in cities than anywhere else. Right? Humanity was made in the image of God. We, we are like God. We are made in his likeness and image. And when cities, when people are condensed, there's more image of God per square inch than any other place. And so because of this, cities have the highest potential to reflect God's glory. Now, I think typically when we think of like going places where God's glory is, is obvious, right? Grand Canyon, beautiful, Yosemite, beautiful places in creation. And those places are beautiful to see the landscapes and the trees and the wildlife. Those things do display God's beauty, but humanity in cities demonstrate and, and, and radiate God's glory in a way that those desolate places do not. And that's why Jesus likens the church in Matthew 5 to a city on a hill. It's a good thing. Jesus is saying, church, it's a good thing that you would be like a city on a hill. The Bible has a positive view of the city. Yet sin, which is the human propensity to mess things up, has caused cities to defect. Sin has marred God's design for this city. While there are still traces of good, and we can see that general framework that God has provided for us where cities flourish, the city is capable of just as much evil as it is good. In cities, we see concentrated brokenness, 
injustice, crime, and evil. So there's sort of this dual nature uh, of cities where that's good, but there's also this brokenness to them. So instead of safety and stability because of sin, we now have crime and poverty, dysfunction, injustice, bad politics in the city. Instead of unity and diversity, our city becomes places where we see sex of racism and oppression, classism. We see enclaves of homogeny where people look across the fence and say, you're not like me, I don't want anything to do with you. Instead of productivity and creativity being a way for us to worship God, productivity and creativity become a way for us to self-worship, a way for us to make a name for ourselves, to say, look at how good I am. There are biblical examples of these cities that are antithetical toward God's design. Honestly, you don't even have to get out of the book of Genesis to find them. You see Babel in Genesis, I think, chapter 11. Not too long after that, you're introduced to Sodom and Gomorrah, these three cities particularly nasty in the way that they've disregarded God, that they've broken God's design for how cities ought to function. And when you think about it, every single city, whether ancient or modern, shares some of their DNA. And it's not just the cities like Miami and Las Vegas that, are, that have a, a reputation of their nightlife or these specific sins that look particularly grievous to God. This sin has infiltrated all cities, including our cities, Moline, Rock Island, all the Quad Cities. And it's not isolated to certain parts of town either. Sin is so prevalent that it affects every avenue and every cul-de-sac. And there are places in our city where we can say, yeah, we kind of mirror the big city in their sins, right? The surface level, like we look at it, and yeah, it's definitely wrong. But the Quad Cities, I think, sins in its own particular way. The question is then, what is the shape? What is the form that sin takes in our city? What are the specific ways that Rock Island and Moline sin? Like I said, there's probably a lot that we can point to and say, well, this is, this is obviously something that's wrong with our city. This shouldn't be happening, right? The typical sins. But we really get to the heart of the matter. We really get to the root of the sin when we ask the question, where does our city find its identity? What makes us who we are? What sets our city apart from other cities around us in the Midwest? What justifies us? What validates us? And if the answer is anything but God, if we're looking to anything but God for this identity, our city is in sin. So let me just point out three areas. Three, they're pretty big umbrella areas. I don't have the time. And we'll probably, as we progress through this sermon series, I'll have time to unpack these more and more. But there are three big umbrellas where our city sins. That I think that our city goes to to look for our identity. And it's not just secular people who don't go to church. I think this is very much true of the people who are sitting in the pews throughout our city today. I think the first one is this idea that we look for our identity in our blue-collar work ethic. 
This is one of the things about being a Midwesterner that a lot of us are proud of, that we learned how to work from a young age. We taught, maybe you were on the farm, maybe you worked with dad in the shop, wherever you were, you learned how to work hard. And that's a good thing. It's a good thing for us to sweat and, and to work hard in our city, to, to support our family, to contribute to society. It's a good thing. In fact, that's what God calls us to do in a lot of, of different ways. But if we are looking to our work ethic to find our identity, to find our value and our worth, it's a terrible place. Because what happens what happens when you're looking to your work ethic for your identity, for your validation, and you get laid off? Right? Your, your world gets shook. What happens if you're injured and you can't produce like you used to produce? Right? The, the identity fails you. It lets you down. Not only does it let you down, but the more we give ourselves to this identity, the more we give ourselves to this work ethic defining us, the more we start to value people based on their output. Right? In a society that's driven by a work ethic, a high work culture, we value those who produce and we devalue those who are disabled and elderly, people who cannot produce like we do. Right? We become a city who becomes partial. We're not equal opportunity lovers. We don't, we don't love everyone in our city. We just love certain types of people in our city. That's the first way that I see this, this blue-collar work ethic. The second big umbrella that I see uh, in how our cities tend to sin is by putting a high priority on the nuclear family. Listen, there's, there's no... Faith that is more pro-family than the Christian faith. The Bible tells us over and over again, husbands love your wives, wives love your husbands, parents love your kids, kids honor your parents. Yes, we should love our family, but, but there's a thing that when we, when we love our family so much, we elevate it to the place of God that it can actually prevent us from worshiping God with our whole life, even as a family, because the family becomes a thing instead of God. And I sense that in a pretty uh, predominant way that family, I, family idolatry, that this elevation of the family next to or even above God is one of the biggest issues facing our church, uh, facing our city, because it's hard to call people to follow Jesus, right, to look at the church as the new family when there's such a high value on the nuclear family. Now listen, uh, I wasn't planning on talking about this, but I'm going to because when uh, the Jewish culture that Jesus walked in was more pro-family than what we have in American culture. Like the family was the thing in first century, first century Hebrew culture. And Jesus said a lot of really difficult things to swallow, to process in that culture, right? He says, if he who does not hate his father and mother and, and doesn't follow me, right? There's this, you've got to put the priority on God. Even when Jesus is on the cross, he's being crucified, he, he has this redefinition of the family looking at his mother and says, mother, look at, look at my disciple. 
Right now you guys are a family. He restructures, reorients this idea of family, even in Hebrew culture. And as family idolatry becomes sort of the norm, we start to see more and more how kids' activities, how family events can deter us from participating in God's family by, by contributing to the mission that God has for his church. And we become inwardly focused, this sort of enclave of family. We start investing all of our time, all of our resources in our kids' sports, drama, music, whatever it would be. We, we, we put a priority on those things and we start to devalue things like missional community and church and family life and serving our city together as a church family. And what happens little by little, even though we might affirm everything the Bible says and come and worship on Sunday mornings, instead of seeing the family as the crew God has given us to be on mission with, the family and, and the, the drive of maintaining and satisfying your family becomes your life mission. The mission gets flipped upside down. And the third thing that I see going on in our city is this middle-of-the-road morality. They say that culture, especially in America, culture starts its way on the coast and works its way to the middle. Right? You, 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 you want to see where culture is being developed? You look to places like San Francisco and L.A. You look to New York. You look to uh, Washington, D.C. That's where culture is being made and morals and societal norms are being developed and they work their way little by little till you get to the Midwest. And so this is a place of pride, even though we're late adopters to the, the new norms, we tend to have this ability to be sort of in the middle of the road. We're not too far left. We're not too far right. We have a, a, a sort of unified sense of decency of what's right and what's wrong, what's right to do, what's not right to do. And as Midwesterners, because we have this ability to say, well, that, that's crazy and that's just dumb, we have this ability where we're like, man, I feel proud of the way that I see the world. We're, we're good people. We, we know what's right. We know in some sense what it looks like to be good neighbors, to fulfill our civic duties, to help people out, to be right, good people. But at the core of this, this is works-based righteousness. Whenever, whenever you give yourself to works-based righteousness, it causes you to look down on people who aren't like you. Now, family, morality, work ethic, these are not bad things. In fact, you can see how Scripture affirms a lot of these things about, the, about this, the, these patterns. They're not bad things, but what we tend to do as a city is eval to, to elevate them. We rely on these things as a means to justify ourselves, as a measuring stick for what's good and to measure ourselves. How good are we doing? What's my sense of value and dignity like? But what we don't realize is that doing these things is actually keeping us from God. That they function as God replacements. But here's the thing. Few churches are calling people in our city to repent of this stuff. 
Because what's happening as we as a city sin corporately, it tends to normalize sin. This is just the way that things are. This is the norm. It's okay for you to do it because that's what they're doing. And when sin is normalized, even the most religious cities become anti-God. Now, this is why I talked about the dual nature, right? God is very proud of cities. He sees the value, the dignity of uh, the glory, the potential that cities have. But there's also this deep ache and grief over the city because we see how Cities drift into sin further and further and further. In fact, when Jesus was doing his ministry, he, he was out uh, at a distance and he looked at Jerusalem. This is sort of like the epicenter of religiosity in Jewish culture. He looks at Jerusalem and he weeps over the city because of its hostility toward God. Now, that was the fall, right? Creation, God creates cities to be good. The fall deteriorates cities. Things don't go well. And you would think that looking at the fall, you see how far the fall is, how how bad things get. And given the downward trajectory of the city, you might be thinking that maybe God uh, ought to change his mind, change his opinion about the city. Like, go to plan B. Just throw in the towels that, you know what, cities are too messed up. Let's come up with, you know, let's let's move to the suburbs. That's where it's going to be. But the story of the Bible doesn't end in the suburbs. The story of the Bible ends in a city, the the new Jerusalem that's radically pro-God. And as the city is radically pro-God, it starts to live in this, this idea within the framework, within the guidelines that God has given the city, and it starts to flourish as the way it was designed to do, to become safe and secure and prosperous, where there are streets of gold. We, we preached through the book of Revelation not too long ago, where you see all of this, this imagery in Revelation chapter 21 and 22, streets of gold. There's no violence. There's no injustice. Crime has been expelled. No, so, uh, no, no, no um, sorrow or grief or pain. No poverty. There's no slums in the new Jerusalem. It's a place where it's radically diverse. Every tongue, every tribe, every nation is represented there, yet it's radically unified. The new heavens, new earth, the new Jerusalem, it's a place of creativity, of beauty. The very best of every culture is represented in this new city, and it's totally redeemed in all of its glory. And this, is, this is not just a theoretical someday pipe dream, this might happen. This, this idea of a restored city. No, no, no. The heavenly city that Revelation 21 and 22 present to us is a reality. It's something as real and as certain as the pew that you're sitting on right now. So the question is then how, if God isn't given up on the city, even though he is created, things fell apart, and we see that this, the trajectory of what's going to happen someday, how does God make this happen? How do we get from where we are in our city? Because we can all groan with our city and see the aches and the pains. We can see the brokenness in our city. How do we get to the point where we rejoice in the flourishing of our city with God? And the answer is looking into the story of redemption where God moves into the city himself, where God actually has a zip code. 
where Jesus comes in this world not just to occupy it, not just to say, yeah, we here, we, we checked in on Facebook, we, we're in this city, right? But to redeem it, to restore it, to work for its improvement. And when Jesus came to earth, he preached on how our city, well, our city, but specifically the cities that he was in, how these cities could become like the future city, how this, those cities could become like the kingdom of God. And the, the core piece of his message is that the people of the city start to love God more than anything else. That God would be the foundation, that God would be the center, that God would be the source of the identity of the city. And that as people in the city love God with everything that they have, with their, their mind, their soul, their strength, that this love would permeate through every square inch of our city. Now, as Jesus came, not only presenting this message, but actually living out this message, everywhere that Jesus went, he was loving toward that place. And as Jesus showed love to the city, the city rejected him. The city said, we don't want to have anything to do with you. We don't want to have anything to do with your message. And Jesus, as we celebrated just a week and a half ago, was crucified on Good Friday outside of the city. Right? The evil of humanity there. You want to talk about a city being anti-God, killing God himself. But this was not in vain. What looked like the city doing its worst, its most sinful, darkest act, was really God working his best. See, the brutal act of violence of humanity towards Jesus was God's greatest demonstration of love. And when Jesus was there on the cross, he was paying the price for sin so that we could be freed from sin's grip on us that we could be liberated from these false identities that eventually just let us down, that we could find our new citizenship in heaven. And so it's through sacrificial love that Jesus came and redeemed and is at work redeeming the city. So we can look at our city the way that God looks at our city. When God looks at our city, he doesn't say, oh, just let's toss it away, let's start over fresh. God looks at our city, he has compassion for our city, and he offers a new story. He offers hope. He's giving us a true righteousness that we don't have to earn by our works. He's offering us a true and better morality that, that, that Jesus Christ fulfilled him for himself in perfection. And that as we trust in him, that we are credited with his righteousness. He's offering us rest from our workaholism, trying to prove ourselves day in and day out. God is making us part of not just a new city, but of a new family, an eternal family. A family that is unified by the blood of Christ. A family that we get to live in everyday rhythms, in community and on mission with. See, this is the hope of the city. 
The gospel is the hope of our city. It's not in new business structures. It's not in new developments. It's not in any of these things that we could come up with uh, down at the Chamber of Commerce. The hope of the city is the gospel. It's the antidote for every bad thing that plagues our city, and it's the key to revitalization and renewal. This is the story of God that's unfolding. And here in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus puts it on the church to believe in the good work that God is doing and has done through the person and work of Jesus. To believe that God actually loves his city so much that he would send his son to die for it. And that as we believe this, that we would shine the light of God before our city. That we would say, look out city, there is hope for us. And as we step into this work, as we are filled by the power of the Holy Spirit and partner with God, we can work for the renewal, for the redemption, for the redeeming of our cities. To make our cities a better place, not just for the church, but for all people. See, this is what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 5. He says, you are the light of the world. The city might seem dark. It might seem bleak. There are clearly problems with this. But you are a light in the darkness. You are a city set on a hill which cannot be hidden. And he says, he calls us to this, calls us in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. Now, as the church works for the good of the city, as for the renewal of the city, this is not a means for us to prop ourselves up and say, look at us, look at how good we are, let's pat ourselves on the back. This is a way that we work to glorify God because everything that the church does isn't about us, it's about God. It's about God's glory shining through the darkness. It's about God working to redeem and restore all things back to himself, especially Moline especially Rock Island. And that as we see the lengths that God went to to redeem the city, that we would love the city like God loved the city, that we would become people who are all in on the city just as God is all in on the city. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your great love with which you've loved us, that you have not withheld anything, that even in our brokenness, even in our sin, even the ways that we've wandered from you, God, you have loved us with an unrelenting love. You show us that you love us so greatly that you have a desire for our greatest good, that you would send your one and only son to die for us. It was because you loved the world, because you love the city, God, I pray you would make us people that would love our city. I pray that you would free us from, from the false and sinful uh, perceptions of the city that keep us from stepping into loving and doing the good works. God, I pray that you would make us this city on a hill, that the light of the world, that Jesus Christ would shine from this place forth, and that we would get to see you do something miraculous, that you would transform our city to restore it to all its glory and beyond, God. We ask this for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.